Welcome to Information's Crossroads podcast. I'm Jonathan Burke, America's editor for Information. Uh, joining me today is Robin Ganguly, uh, the Asian editor for Information, uh, live from Hong Kong. Uh, thanks for joining us today, sir. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Uh, and uh, Jonathan Carmody, uh, the Latin American editor. Uh, today, we're going to discuss uh, Asian cross-border investment. Uh, later in the program, we will talk to Michael Lukoski uh, to discuss uh, state funding needs for U.S. infrastructure projects. Uh, but first, um, let's talk about Asian investment. Uh, if you look at information deals, you can see that uh, Japanese trading houses such as Marabini, Mitsui, and Mitsubishi uh, have anywhere between 20% uh, to 40% of their portfolio housed in Latin American infrastructure assets. Uh, while the Chinese have been extremely active in Brazil uh, with the likes of China Communications Construction Co. We notice uh, CCCC uh, showing interest in a Brazilian port project. Uh, so against this backdrop, Robin, perhaps, and, and again, thank you for making uh, your, your Crossroads debut here. Um, perhaps you can talk to us about how um, there's been such a huge intersection of Asian capital with Latin American projects in terms of how it's been active historically, and uh, do you foresee a continuance of this? Uh, thanks, John. Yes, definitely. I mean, looking at what uh, COVID-19 has done over the past few months showed as a dampener on uh, on how things are happening. But uh, if you look historically, I think your question is a bit more, you know, perspective. So looking at it from a historical perspective over the past uh, 20 years, 25 years or so, we've seen China investing a lot of money in, in Latin America. And one of the things uh, that have helped Chinese, uh, mainly state-run companies, I might add, get into Latin America were friendly governments, um, slightly left-leaning governments that you had in Latin America. So I think that has really helped. Um, things have changed somewhat over the last um, several years, uh, over the last decade or so, and uh, but you know Chinese investments have kept on growing. Uh, if you look, you know at from 2005 to say around uh, 2019. So you've had more than uh, 140, 150 billion US dollars invested in Latin America from, uh, from, from the Chinese side. And mainly historically we've seen like, you know, the bigger Chinese players such as, you know, China Three Gorges. We have the State Straight Grid Corporation of, uh, of China, that we have China Southern Power Grid, then China State Power, and uh, you know, even China Investment Corp. So um, it has seen a, a lot, of, lot of interest. But however, if uh, something that's very interesting over the past maybe three, four years or so, uh, we, we're seeing more Chinese commercial uh, lenders, commercial companies, like, you know, who are less driven by policy. I mean, the overhang of of policy requirements and, and friendly governments is still there, of course, definitely. But uh, the Chinese uh, lenders are slightly changing. You know, they are also very interested in in, in, in commercial, commercial returns. Uh, now, the second part of your question, whether this is going to continue, yes, it definitely will. Um, but I think we may have to wait a while. Uh, traditionally, if you look at China and most other countries in the world, um, you know, China still is, I think, uh, uh, Jonathan would be able to correct me on this, is the second largest trade partner for Latin America. Um, I think 
uh, you know, we've seen recently, you know, China Three Gorges expressing interest. Uh, I mean, saying that it would probably bid for some uh, some projects that are coming up as well after the whole pandemic thing, um, uh, you know, eases off. But the Chinese do, they do like to go in person. So when international flights open up, you know, they will do that. However, uh, you know, you must, uh, we must note also that any time in the past decade or so that China has faced a slowing economy, um, it has looked inwards rather than outwards. So uh, there are two facets to this. Chinese companies will, over the next few months, uh, increase their focus on domestic markets. That said, I'm not sure that they will you know, stop investing completely in Latin America or anywhere else. Latin America, I think, you know, will offer them uh, a lot of opportunity as far as bargains are, are, are concerned. I mean, the people that I've spoken to the last uh, couple of months, they are, you know, all looking forward to bargains in uh, around the world, especially in, in Latin America and Asia. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a very decent summary, Robin. I think one of the other interesting things is to note how these companies are entering Latin America. For a long time, speaking to my sources in the region, we, we'd heard that Chinese companies were very keen, uh, in particular, Japanese companies have been there for longer, uh, but Chinese companies have been very keen to get into the sector, although they weren't particularly good at bidding for assets in the past. In the Greenfields tenders, we often saw that Chinese companies would express interest, they would bid, but they wouldn't win a lot. Uh, a good example of that was the 4G highway program in Colombia. It was around a $20 billion program of about 27 projects, all highways in the country, very sizable highways. We're talking between 300 and maybe $800 million in CapEx requirements. Chinese didn't win any of those projects in the tenders. And I think when you look at the database and information, what you see is that afterwards, uh, post facto, We've seen a lot of the companies coming in and now are trying to buy the concessions, trying to say, look, we were interested in this deal. We did want it at the time. Now that the construction is almost complete, now that the, the asset is, is almost operational, the Chinese still want those assets. They still want a presence in Latin America. I was talking to uh, a sector banker here in New York the other day, and he said to me that, you know, a lot of these players, you mentioned China's trade grid, um, you mentioned China Three Gorges. A lot of these players really see themselves as underexposed to Latin America, and, and they're very keen to improve that situation and gain more exposure to the sector. So it's very interesting to see the activity. You know, The exceptions to that uh, and the proof that the Chinese investment in Latin America is evolving have to be the rail projects in Colombia. Um, we saw some very competitive auctions for the, the largest infrastructure project in Colombia, which is the Metro de Bogota. Uh, this is the first metro line that they want to build in the city of Bogota. Having been to Bogota, I can tell you it's absolutely essential because the traffic is a nightmare. But the bidding was, was very competitive. There were very interesting teams, people from Europe like FCC, uh, people for like Carso and Ideal from Mexico, very, very big players. And the... The winner of the bid, despite the, the intense competition, was actually China Harbor Engineering and the Xi'an Metro Company. And, you know, this was very interesting to see a, a major project, which is going to require probably over a billion dollars in financing, uh, finally being won by a Chinese company. And now we get to see how the Chinese go about financing the projects as well. The other project I'm thinking about in Colombia is it's very much the Regio Tram project. 
Rekhiftaram being an LRT north of the city of Bogota. And again, uh, a greenfield project that they won the bidding for. And we're very interested to see how that develops and how they fund these projects now that they've won the contracts. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, <clears throat> just if I may address, I think very, very interesting points. Um, especially about the fact that, you know, they were bidding, but not uh, kind of making it to the ticketing. But I think that may also, you know, as you said, so things are changing at the moment. One of the major reasons for that is, uh, you know, between 2017, 2018, and like early 2019, the big Chinese banks and the big Chinese investors were all trying to do their, you know, their advisory um, services were mainly in-house. Mm. But now what they've started doing, and there's growing evidence of this, is they've started realizing the value of taking on external advisors, especially when preparing bids in uh, geographies that they're not that familiar with, because it's, it's, uh, this, I think, is a major, major reason why you may see more competitive bidding from, from Chinese and, uh, and even possibly Japanese companies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's a very good point. I think that is, again, what we've seen is, is how they've learned that that's what they needed. They needed that local advice and they needed local uh, local firms to, to be able to tell them how to win these projects, how they were bidding wrong previously. You know, it's, um, it's very interesting as well. You know, we look at some of the largest deals in the quarter. We're about to publish our, our second quarter league table report. And uh, two of the largest deals uh, are by Chinese companies. China Three Gorges bought the Luz del Sur distribution company from Sempra in Peru for around $4 billion. And State Grid Corporation of China bought Sempra's other asset in the distribution sector in Chile, Chilquinta, for around $2.23 billion. So major, major transactions both transactions where there were other European bidders and US bidders who were very vocal about wanting to win these assets, very vocal about wanting to add them to their portfolios. In particular, I'm thinking of Italy's Enel uh, that came out and said it was very keen to acquire both of these businesses. And yet we saw Chinese buyers win the auction in both cases. And a lot of people, perhaps it's simplistic to say that, but when I was talking to other, other bidders and, and other advisors who were working on those deals, one of the things they said is that the benefits that Chinese companies have in particular is access to cheap money. It's very easy for them to finance these acquisitions through, through state-backed banks and state-backed programs. It seems like it's a very, very coherent strategy on behalf of the Chinese companies. We know that a lot of the companies are state-backed uh, and that provides them with incredible financial muscle to be able to compete aggressively for these kind of assets. Cost of capital is always gonna win the day. Um, Robin, just getting, going back to a quick point you made earlier about uh, Japanese commercial lenders and how that dynamic was changing. Uh, were you just referring to their appetite to just mo do more direct investing overseas? Uh, <clears throat> I was actually referring to the Chinese, but but the Japanese. I mean, you know, I visited, oh, sorry. Uh, visited Tokyo last year, so mm -hmm. uh, you know, I I don't see a huge change, a huge uh, you know appetite for risk. The Japanese have traditionally been you know, the safer bets, lower returns, they're happy with the returns of 3% where, you know, a Chinese, um, uh, you know, they may want more than 10 to 11%. That's the gap that you might get between the two. 
And remember, like Chinese money does come with own, with its own pitfalls, right? As in, it's 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 quite it's quite expensive. <clears throat> so, uh, but yeah, but in China, definitely, you know, there is a, you know money isn't free by by any standards. So earlier, uh, ten years ago, I mean, you would have a lot of uh, consideration for state policy, for geopolitics, etc., which is still definitely there. I mean, with you know the U.S.-China uh, trade war coming up. Uh, as in intensifying, so to speak, despite the deal in January. Um, but but yes, I think commercial interests will slowly start taking over. But you know, overall, if you remember, in 2015, Chinese President Xi Jinping said that in 10 years or so, you know, they have uh, they intend to have 250 billion dollars of Chinese investments in Latin America. So I think that's you know it's going to carry on for a while. Uh, great. So, so just. Um... Shifting over to the U.S. Uh, Asian trade dynamic, um, you, you had uh, co-authored a story in December about the, the U.S. trade deal, and obviously things have changed massively since then. Um, but can, can you just kind of update us where that is now at this point? You know, the sign Sorry, of the, the time. U.S. trade deal. Excuse me. Yeah. In in the sign of the times, I mean, the fact that you mentioned this, and I had no recollection about the story that I wrote, just so shows how much you know, things have, have changed in in the six months. We're living in a sure. different world, world entirely. So, uh, I mean, you know, in December, and then you know, just kind of sealed, uh, signed, sealed, and delivered in in January. So we were expecting, hoping that things were going to quiet down. We we always knew that it was never going to go co away completely, but uh, with a lot of uh, forgive the expression, but with a lot of bluster coming from from both sides, things are not really looking up. And with the whole Hong Kong situation, that um, you know that the political situation about China, the security law, so that might drive up uh, deepen tensions between the two sides. And I think overall, that the two ways to look at it: one is that everybody is going to lose, which is a fact. But on the other hand, you know, you do have, um, you know, China's Belt and Road Initiative, which, you know, would probably, you know, China has been trying and pushing this quite, quite extensively. Uh, and, you know, the US, Australia, they're trying to form a sort of counter uh, counterparty to that. So we could get some interesting um, competition for 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 investments, which could be, in fact, not that bad for industry. Yeah, I think the, the other interesting thing is to see the type of assets that the, the Chinese companies in particular have been acquiring. As you mentioned earlier, Japanese companies tend to go for for solid, you know, dependable returns, things like transmission or distribution companies, uh, electric utilities, uh, water utilities in places like Chile, which are very well regulated and, and viewed very favorably by institutional investors. Uh, and the Chinese really had a, a strong play for energy assets and power assets. You know, in Brazil, they've acquired numerous wind farms and hydroelectric plants. In Peru, the, the Chagia facility was one of the largest hydroelectric dams in the country. And that was acquired again by China Three Gorges and consorted with other Chinese investors. Uh, and to see them now moving more into the transport space, you know, that's interesting. Historically, there was an incident in 2014, 2015, when the Mexican government actually awarded China, uh, well, a Chinese company, the, the Carretero high-speed rail train. Now, this was a $3.5 billion project 
there was a little bit of controversy around the bidding. How had this company won? They were the sole bidder. How could you guarantee value for money in the bidding process? Uh, and there was a lot of rumors that the US just was really unhappy that a Chinese company would win a project that size in Mexico. Now, fast forward a few months to mid-2015, and the Chinese government was really upset when Mexico canceled that project very unexpectedly, seemingly without much reason. There was never really a good excuse given. And I think when you look at where China is invested and where Chinese companies have invested after that incident, it's been outside of Mexico. It's been south of Mexico, places like Brazil, places like Colombia, which have good relationships with the U.S., but are not perhaps regarded so much as the U.S.'s backyard. So it's interesting to see that dynamic when you talk about the trade deals. Obviously, let's not forget that the, the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, now known as the USMCA, uh, was also signed again earlier this year, passing through Congress. And AMLO, president of Mexico, was here buddying up with Donald Trump, despite all of the things that have happened between Mexico and the US in the last few years. So there's strategic plays around the relationships. And, and just one final indication of that to give you would be Paraguay, one of the few countries in Latin America that still recognizes Taiwan as a sovereign state. Mm -hmm. And as a result, doesn't really have much relationship with China, doesn't really have the business relationships with China that the other countries do, uh, and stands as a real outlier, whereas everybody else is very keen to tap into Chinese markets, especially for their, their raw materials and their minerals that they can export. Jonathan, I had a if I may, if I have a very quick question for you. Sure. I was speaking to a, a very senior AIIB official uh, a couple of weeks ago. I'm very curious to see, um, I mean, you know, I know that they do have uh, some pending Latin American uh, memberships. How do investors in Latin America view the AIIB? <laughs> That's not a question I've asked them a lot, but I, I will definitely add it to my list of questions. Um, I, I really don't know. There, I mean, do they see it as a as a as as a as an arm of the state, or is it? I would say that I've never heard it mentioned in oh. in Latin American project finance. Um, were you thinking in regards to financing projects? Yes. So again, what we've seen traditionally in in Chinese investment in Latin America has been predominantly M and A. Um, there hasn't been a lot of financing involved in that. A lot of these bids are done without any kind of uh, acquisition financing. But now that we're seeing companies like uh, Costco Shipping acquiring a major port project to, to be built in Peru, uh, now that we have the Metro deal that I talked about in Colombia, we may see more interest in acquiring fronts from the AACIB. Um, and so I think that's something that may come into focus in the next few months whereas it hasn't previously been because most of the investment has been straight equity acquisitions. Okay. Great stuff. Um, just circling back one final question to you, uh, Robin, just talking about opportunity and opportunity for Chinese. Um, yesterday it was announced that uh, Partners Group uh, had acquired uh, something called the C uh, Bras Group, which is a subsea fiber optic cable system uh, network between uh, Brazil and USA. Uh, Partners was an original backer of that project as the lender, uh, and they took over the, the keys in a, uh, a Chapter 11 filing in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, circling back to the Chinese and opportunity, um, you know, given everything that's happened in the past um, four months, uh, there could very well be a lot of opportunity coming down the path 
uh, for the Chinese and anyone else uh, looking into various parts of both corporate and real assets uh, in the U.S. Um, have you um, heard from anything uh, in the, the investment community about the opportunity here? There hasn't been much in the way of Chinese involvement in infrastructure over here other than through, um, sorry, Asian even, sorry, through, through rail projects where uh, they obviously have the technology and expertise and they're an investor in the, the, the high-speed rail project right now from Dallas to Houston, which is still in early stages. But other than that, not a massive uh, infusion of capital uh, that we're seeing in Latin America. But long-winded way of, we, of asking, um, have you heard anything new in terms of opportunities for the Chinese uh, in the U.S. market? If you're talking about the United States of America itself, yes, I have heard quite a fair bit from uh, you know the senior uh, financing people that I've spoken to. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to one of them who is the overseas representative of a major Chinese bank. And she was quite emphatic in the sense that it's not really worth their while trying to invest a lot of money in the US uh, at, you know, given the current political tension. So quite a few people said, you know, it's not really worth their time and the trouble and the risk that something might happen uh, as far as US-China political tensions are concerned. And uh, I think the Chinese are more interested in Latin America, um, as you know, and Africa. They've got a lot to do in the rest of Asia as well, that a lot of opportunities are opening up. I think, uh, you know, some of these companies, uh, mainland Chinese companies and, uh, and banks and lenders are a little bit straining at the leash. So they are looking for a lot of bargains. So I suspect that, you know, when flights, et cetera, open up, there will be a spike in, in Chinese investments, but I don't really seeing that happen either in the US or in most of Europe as well. I, I'm not sure that that answers your question, but uh, in the US, I'm not seeing a lot of Chinese investments coming in in, in the near future. Yeah, um, thank you for having those. That was a good answer and uh, appreciate the commentary. It raised an interesting point though about Africa. Uh, Jonathan's uh, readers are, are watching uh, an auction right now that goes to both uh, Latin America as well as Africa, and I'm talking about mainstream renewables, um, which is has a 10 gigawatt uh, portfolio of renewable projects either um, uh, being constructed or in development, uh, and part portfolio is in Chile. There's some assets in Africa. Uh, and I think they have a few in Europe. Uh, first round bids were due there in uh, late June, June 26th. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see, um, you know, what happens there and who winds up as the bidders. I mean, I keep hearing more piecemeal, uh, given how uh, diverse some of those assets are geographically. Um, so curious to see if there's any Asian bid in on that front. Uh, in any case, um, Robin, thank you uh, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Come back anytime. Uh, Jonathan, good to have you as always. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, we'll move on to the next segment. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Bill. Okay, so we move on to speak with Michael Lukoski, who's a um, partner in Advantage Infrastructure, uh, an advisor to governors, multinationals, investment groups, and the like on uh, project finance. So, Michael, thanks for joining the program. Um, and also, sorry, joining us is Andrew Vitelli, uh, who's uh, one of our reporters in information group as well. So, uh, Michael, last uh, time we spoke on the phone, um, you said you were currently looking at 
uh, municipal, municipalities, municipal agencies, and how they get projects funded, uh, specifically um, WIFIA and TIFIA, but then other funding mechanisms outside of WIFIA and TIFIA. So why don't you um, start, uh, well, explain exactly what some of these programs are and, and where the, and what some recent developments have been uh, since we last chatted. Yeah, and thank you. Thanks for uh, the opportunity to speak to folks. Um, yeah, since the, the infrastructure, federal infrastructure landscape is changing pretty dramatically right now. Um, new programs are being introduced at the White House level as well as um, as well as within Congress, both parties. Um, I think the most important shift going on right now is that while we all in the industry recognize that um, infrastructure is not mainly federal and moreover, we will not and um, probably should not uh, aim to have there be a federalization of infrastructure projects. Uh, when that's happened in the past, it's been uh, largely unsuccessful. Um, that said, what we're seeing and going to continue to see is a additional range of federal programs available for infrastructure. Um, perhaps the most important, particularly for the funds, is um, vehicles which, and enhancements to vehicles, which are going to be available to private equity funds across the board, um, to large corporates, including infrastructure, across the board. Um, we can go into some of the, these, but the main thrust is that you know, we're seeing a lot of, and we'll see a lot of infrastructure legislation. It just may not be called infrastructure. Um, so, um, so we'll see in our seeing programs along those lines. Um, with regard to the TIFIA, WIFIA, and the you know, basic alphabet super programs, either in the DOT, um, EPA, and elsewhere, um, increasingly what we're seeing and what we're going to see is we're going to see um, rather than siloed off programs um, within one sector or another sector, we're going to see decisions around infrastructure driven by things such as the location, site location and expansion of advanced manufacturing facilities and the like that need large amounts of infrastructure, water intensive, energy intensive, a need for logistics infrastructure, uh, communications infrastructure, et cetera. And even with our uh, various sector-specific programs, um, nobody is really going to realistically who want those plants with infrastructure built to suit, wait in line for TIFIA program, wait in line for uh, InfraGrants, wait in line for WIFIA, et cetera. There is going to be more and more one-stop shops for bringing together different federal, state, and local um, incentive programs. Interesting. Um, so, what what can you maybe uh, illustrate what some of these funding programs are, or, or some recent examples that to cite? So there's so regardless of what we do with infrastructure programs. Um, particularly incentives for uh, public-private partnerships, be they P3s or other vehicles, um, we really only have five or six ways that we can um, incentivize these programs. And everything we see, virtually everything we see is some version of these. And in the past, during the last 
crisis, this 2007, 2008 financial crisis, we saw a range of programs. We saw 52 public-private partnership incentive programs of various sorts. Um, when it all boils down, uh, you can get loan, loan instruments, bond vehicles, bond incentives, so loans, bonds, tax credits, um, insurance, um, and then competitive grants. Um, the main thing that's been added since that period is a couple of investment platforms uh, from the Jobs Act and then the Opportunity Zone programs. Um, but that's your universe, six different types of vehicles. And, um, and then there's different elements to these vehicles, different target investors for these vehicles, um, et cetera. But um, when it boils down to it, it's those, it's that menu of vehicles. And the P3 community thus far, even in the 2007-2008 crisis, has really nibbled um, at the edges of these available vehicles. Um, and what we're seeing from a client perspective is those ones that are becoming and on their way to becoming most successful are um, asset managers or um, third-party fund vehicles which have a great deal of flexibility built into them with regard to the duration that they can um, hold an asset before shedding it or, um, or the like, uh, including sectoral-based, um, not single siloed sectoral-based approaches. Um, these are these in large uh, multinational corporates that do investment off balance sheet um, or otherwise. Um, those are the those are the types of financing groups that are going to uh, be really going to outpace others, um, especially ones that are able to do innovative things with debt, um, either on a standalone basis, funds with a debt component or corporates with a debt component, or are able to partner with uh, what I would say smart debt providers. And there's always been a resistance within the industry for a large, for a number of different compelling reasons um, to not leverage innovative debt vehicles, but instead to see debt as something that was simply part of the mix, um, a passive type of participation that made um, some of the P3 projects uh, get going. Uh, we're no longer in the, since Dodd-Frank, no longer in the, in the business of uh, being successful by viewing our debt partners as um, as purely passive participation um, that that has to change for success to be optimized. Uh, very true words. Um, so, just a two part question as a follow up. Um, when you talk about smart debt vehicles and debt partners, uh, I. Be curious if you are referring specifically to infrastructure debt funds, which have done. Uh, quite well uh, in the past year or so in terms of their uh, fundraising abilities, um, or are you referring to other vehicles within private credit or some mixture of both? Uh, and then behind that too, I'd like to kind of get your sense on the municipal debt market. Uh, and what's your sort of sense for them the rest of the year in terms of being a supporting partner on, on some of these projects that are in the pipeline? Sure. Great question. So, um, so, the first one is pretty easy to directly address, which is um, there's, there's, there's just a growing need for debt funds 
and for death vehicles. So what I'm pointing to definitely uh, brings in the death vehicles. Um, the death vehicles are, um, are just starting to be um, thought through in terms of what folks are looking for um, in debt uh, and on the debt front. Um, I'd say that one of the areas that the, the debt universe is much larger than the debt funds. And um, some of the greatest dynamism within the P3 sector with regard to debt, uh, we're going to see from other types of debt providers as well. Um, first, as a general matter, if you can play with debt, um, then there's going to be project finance opportunities that are debt-driven vehicles without equity. Um, I think one of the things that we're learning right now is twofold in that transition into the muni program market, which is that Dodd-Frank and um, the uh, associated uh, Volcker rule and associated uh, changes to the infrastructure financing markets in 2007-2008 have touched off a whole range of changes within the muni debt program. Um, I think the beauty debt programs have become much more innovative. Um, some of the uh, folks that sat within the investment banks on the debt side um, have moved into other sections of the investment banks and outside of the investment banks. Um, they're not just providing tax exempt and taxable debt. Um, they're providing innovative loan vehicles to municipalities whereby um, you, one can take out um, uh, public agencies are taking out uh, senior uh, loans that are senior to their bondholders uh, without disclosing their seniority to the existing bondholders. Um, perfectly permissible um, types of activities. Um, so I think that as a general matter, um, we're going to see um, and we're seeing in the muni market. Um, a, somewhat of an appetite for the public institutions to take out um, more debt rather than last time where we were so focused on moving to off-balance sheet solutions through equity. Um, the latter will always be essential in the core element of the P3 market, but um, there are coming in the, uh, shortly um, programs that allow uh, public entities to restructure their balance sheets, sort of like taking down a second mortgage on their balance sheet, where they'll be able to unlock a lot of capital um, from their balance sheet. Um, so that will be almost like an equity-like vehicle, and those have happened in the past during 2007, 2008. So those will be quite important. Um, so I would as a general matter, the muni bond market and the muni loan market has been transforming, and we um, had such an issue because of the origins of the, most of the private equity firms outside of Macquarie, outside of IFM, and outside of Meridian and a few others. Most of our funds are vintage, um, uh, are pre-early vintage, and so as a result, um, we have to be open to doing new things. The, um, the days of the equity folks doing battle with the debt folks and vice versa um, has to change. Otherwise, we're, we're not going to see any, um, any real active participation by the equity providers to scale unless the two parties just come to terms with each other and stop treating with one another as um, 
as arch enemies in the market as has traditionally happened. Great. Um, Andrew, you'd written about um, one of those interesting developments circulating around um, the Senate yesterday. Um, why don't you tell us? Uh... Yeah, that's right. So one of the most recent proposals um, was a bipartisan legislation proposed by Roger Wicker, who's a Republican from Mississippi, and Michael Bennett from Colorado, who's a Democrat. And it would create what are called American infrastructure bonds. And I guess these would build on the Build America bonds. Um, and they're supposed to be uh, increase the flexibility uh, that, that's associated with them. Curious whether you've taken a look at this proposal, whether you think that is kind of a need, whether the Build America bonds uh, program can be, can be built upon in that way. Yeah, it's a very good question. So we've been working on these issues for a number of months um, on that type of vehicle. Um, and then also last time around, the 2007-2008, where we saw the Build America bonds or the BABs come in, um, I advised uh, extensively the Treasury Department on that program. Um, as, first of all, um, you know, we have to boil it down a little bit. Um, we're not going to see Build America bonds or BABs again. Um, for a number of reasons. However, um, what we will see and what this piece of legislation amongst other similar pieces of legislation um, do is they provide a, um, a subsidy um, to, uh, to help draw institutional investors, pensions, um, sovereigns, insurance funds, uh, and others into the marketplace um, by taking the uh, tax-exempt bond um, subsidy that uh, comes from the Federal Treasury Department by way of um, uh, uh, foregoing uh, tax uh, revenue from the municipal bondholders, so the Treasury sees that as a hit to the market, and replacing it with a grant, uh, with a subsidy for these large institutional investors to come in who have been not able to participate in the tax-exempt market. Um, so one of the successes of the Build America bond program, which will be in this iteration, um, will be um, the fact that the public entities are going to have the option, most likely, of taking uh, that subsidy that would usually be um, a foregone revenue to the U.S. Treasury Department, letting the public entities have that cash and that will create an incentive to use the program. Um, however, for the P3 community, um, you know, we have to take care. We have to be more flexible because this bond vehicle, um, which isn't just debt, it also involves an unlocking of, um, of a subsidy to public entities for taking out this debt uh, for a range of public purposes. Well, this will be a competitor to the private fund model. Um, this is if all we are doing at the P3 sector in the fund model, be it debt or equity, is to bundle um, the sovereigns, the pensions, the insurance funds, and others, um, and then to drive their money through our P3 vehicles into the market. Well, the a new Build America bond program um, will be aiming to drive that same class of investors into the, pro into the market. And the truth is they've had a lot more success historically through these Build America bond type programs than we have as an industry um, with regard to our own vehicles. So last time around, the Build America bond program, uh, which was bipartisan in usage, um, over 
quarters, really five, only five active quarters, it raised about $168 billion of money that went into the market. Gosh, that's a whole lot more than um, what we're raising um, in deploying in the market, what we're deploying rather in the market uh, by bundling those same outside investors. So somebody's doing this right. And I would say that they're doing it right um, in certain ways because they're accommodating the existing uh, tax exempt and taxable market rather than um, saying, oh, well, we do it better, do it our way. And the latter approach has not been as successful as anybody around would like it to be. Uh, we can't go to one of the core lessons is that we have so much post Frank available, so much more flexibility in our global asset managers and our fund structures. Um, we have to look at these types of uh, programs, these tax credit programs, Andrew, that you're raising. And we have to think as an industry, how do we learn, but how do we compete now compete these groups? Um, otherwise, we're going to see our sovereigns, all of our um, LPs start to migrate um, towards these other vehicles, which are largely being carried out by our um, peers in the debt investment banker side and elsewhere. Yeah, it kind of makes me think on, on two levels. You have a, a great playing field if you're, you know, a grant or, you know, this kind of thing. If, say, these bonds ever came to light with that against the private market, you know, sweet options is never a bad thing. Uh, but to your point, at the same end of things, the the role of the equity investor in these projects starts to, to, to be deminimized somewhat. Is that, is that kind of what, what you're thinking there, Mike? Yeah, it is. I think we have a few challenges on the equity side and on the debt fund side, but we speak purely on the equity fund side, is the new accounting rules is throwing a lot of the availability payment um, off balance sheet solution onto the balance sheet of issuers uh, of public entities that we have to deal with. Um, we have to make, uh, we have to adapt with the products that we offer um, as a result of that uh, trend. Um, and that trend is also happening meanwhile uh, with this other trend, which is incentives to take out more debt for public entities. And if you look at the debt market for public entities, the cost of capital is pretty low right now. Um, balance sheets, well, folks are willing to take out more debt for some reason. Um, and for, because of really innovations that have been driven by Dodd-Frank, which make it a different type of debt. Um, and then we're seeing these new programs, and we saw a dozen of them, at least under the previous 2007-2008, that if you bring in debt at low interest rate with deep federal subsidies and you restructure your balance sheet, well, you're essentially um, unlocking capital that you never had as well. Um, so as a result, we have to be, we have to double down, not double down, we have to be much more focused on what is the essence, what is our value proposition from an equity perspective. And then as peers in that market, we have to look around. Some of us are being are far more successful than others. Um, the trends are to um, larger uh, long-term dated funds, uh, flexible funds according to sector. Um, asset managers are, uh, are becoming more and more successful relative to other peers. Um, Closed-ended funds are great for deploying capital, but increasingly, um, 
the assets on offer are um, are calling for longer dated uh, equity vehicles. Um, a range of things like that that we're seeing in the market that need to be a time for self-reflection so we can optimize our um, our vehicles, which um, which are incredibly sophisticated and incredibly diverse. Um, not all funds or investment vehicles are created the same. So if we see certain peers continue to um, get shortlisted on most of the projects, or we see new entrants from uh, different parts of the world start to play and play successfully, um, well, let's, as the markets begin to figure that out, why are certain vehicles more successful than others and how are they working these things? Uh, because I know nobody wants to not be shortlisted on a recurring basis and nobody wants to be shortlisted only periodically. And those are the types of things that the market has to self-reflect upon um, before even thinking about what federal subsidies are or can be useful. You have to get through the gate into the shortlists uh, before you worry about the federal subsidies and other subsidies on their way to help you um, get in that type of position. Well, I think on that note, uh, I think it's about all the time we got. So, uh, Michael, thank you for coming on the program today. Really appreciate it. And uh, please uh, tune in next time. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone.